Welcome to the Northwestern Masters of the Arts and Sports Administration Revenue Above Replacement Podcast. I'm Bryce Clinton, and I'm joined by Adam Grossman. I have a really interesting show today, and Adam has an interview with Mike Tannenbaum. Adam, can you give a bit more background around Mike's experience as an NFL executive and media analyst? Absolutely. Mike Tannenbaum joined ESPN as the NFL front office insider in April 2019, a former NFL executive with more than two decades worth of experience in team front offices. He now appears on a variety of ESPN platforms, including NFL Live, SportsCenter, First Take, and Get Up. Prior to ESPN, Tannenbaum worked for several NFL franchises, most notably as an executive vice president of football operations for the Miami Dolphins from 2015 to 2018, and executive vice president and general manager for the New York Jets from 2006 to 2012. Under Tannenbaum's leadership, the Dolphins made the playoffs in 2016 for the first time in eight seasons, and the Jets advanced to the playoffs in three seasons, won four playoff games, and made two AFC championship game appearances. Tannenbaum's tenure as general manager of the Jets marked the most successful seven-year period in the franchise's history. You know, many of us know Mike from his work in the NFL and, and as you mentioned, on television, but his interest and experience in sports extends beyond the NFL, even representing NBA coaches. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So between uh, his executive roles with the Jets and Dolphins, Tannenbaum represented head coach Steve Kerr with the Golden State Warriors and David Blatt then with the Cleveland Cavaliers and others serving as an agent and principal at Priority Sports and Entertainment from 2013 to 2014. Uh, I've also spoken directly with Mike. Mike has an interest in advanced analytics, uh, both uh, from an on-field perspective and off-the-field perspective, and he's interested in how technology, numbers, and data help drive insights in the sports industry. Yeah, it's a really interesting and, and varied background, and, and we all look forward to this wide-ranging interview with Mike Tannenbaum. Welcome, everybody, to the Northwestern University Masters Sports Administration podcast. Uh, my name is Adam Grossman, and I'm a professor at uh, Northwestern Masters Sports Administration program. Uh, with us for today's guest is Mike Tannenbaum. Um, Mike, uh, as we talked about, we'll give a larger introduction in the opening of the podcast. But, Mike, if you want to provide a little bit of background on your end, that would be helpful for us. Sure. Uh, I graduated from uh, University of Massachusetts in 1991, and I worked for the uh, Pittsfield Mets when I graduated, putting cheese on the nachos and uh, basically uh, doing anything that I needed to for the team. It was based on that experience that I knew that I wanted to work in sports. I went to Tulane Law School and graduated uh, in 1995. I was there where I I was fortuitous in terms of a once in a 75-year event happened where the NFL had a salary cap and the owners got the form of cost certainty and the players in exchange got free agency. So literally overnight, um, the populations of front offices had to change from former coaches to people with JDs and MBAs. So I was truly at the right place at the right time. I wrote a book on how to maximize uh, salary cap allocations sent to every team. And uh, in 95, I got hired by Coach Belichick and the Cleveland Browns. Uh, as some of you may remember, that classes get younger and younger every year. The 95 Browns became the Ravens. Uh, I went back to the Saints for the 96 season. And then Coach Parcells and Coach Belichick left the New, uh, New England Patriots after the 96 season. I got hired in 97, spent 16 years with the Jets, last seven as the general manager. Once that ended, uh, I started a coaching representation agency. And uh, I was very uh, fortunate to represent Steve Kerr and David Blatt. So even though I have a background in football, the 2013 NBA Finals between the Cavaliers 
and the Warriors, I was fortunate enough to represent both coaches. And that was a great experience. Then I got to know Steve Ross and uh, started doing some consulting for him in analytics, sports performance. And uh, that led to eventually running the Dolphins for four years. And um, since then, I transitioned to ESPN and have been their uh, on-air general manager for the last year and a half. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And one of the questions we want to ask, and you know, you've obviously achieved a lot of success uh, both in the front office for the Jets and the Dolphins, but also uh, as an agent. But one of the things I think was interesting, particularly in the context of getting those jobs, was uh, you mentioned you before you wrote a book on the salary cap before you even really had a job or a significant job in the industry. So, what was the impetus for writing the book, and how did you go about, you know, or how did you decide you wanted to go and kind of contact all these different teams potentially for a job? Yeah, and Adam, I want to give the answer in the context of you know, people taking uh, your class or in the program at Northwestern, yeah. I assume, would like to work in sports. And, you know, for me, it was just uh, fundamentally a lot of the same principles apply today, which is it's about creating value. And uh, I was in really the truly the nascent stage of what is a very much more of a, uh, I would say, mature sort of spectrum in sports now in terms of salary cap management. Everyone's doing that. And if you're looking to get in sports in 2020, I would challenge you to say, what was it in 93, 94, 95? What's the equivalent of that in 2020? Analytics is certainly part of that, but where's that conversation going to be in another five years? So I wrote that book because I felt like I could create value in a very short amount of time. And even though I was only an unpaid intern, nobody had more experience uh, with the salary cap than I did. And I used that to my advantage. So moving the story forward 25 years later, you know, what can you do now to distinguish yourself and create value in a short amount of time? And then, you know, do you consider the first job, you know, like I said, you've obviously been very successful, but what would you say is your, you know, what would you say is your highlight of your professional career? You know, some people would say the first job, particularly a job to break into the industry could be there where, where they see, you know, one of their highlights of their career. But for you, you know, what has been, or what would you say has been your uh, most satisfying professional experience? Yeah, I would say uh, the 2000 season because uh, that was the year that Coach Parcells was the general manager only of the New York Jets, and uh, Al Groh was our head coach, and I spent every day with him. So I, I worked for him intimately for four years, but that one year in particular, Adam, was really special because he was just the general manager, and uh, it was such, he, he impacted me so much, not just professionally, but personally, um, to be somebody world-class uh, every day was something, uh, you know, I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. And uh, of all the things I've gotten to do, working with Steve Kerr was truly special. Um, you know, the owners, Woody Johnson, Steve Ross, all had very special attributes about them. So I feel like I've been able to work around uh, really some dynamic people in my career. And that is a question I also wanted to ask you. You know, you, you've basically now been on both sides of the equation, right? You've represented teams, but I think maybe a people less know about your work with the coaches and working with coaches. So how, one, how did you decide to go between your jobs with the Jets and the Dolphins to on the coach side and on the representation side? And two, what do you think your experience um, on the team side and on that part of the business, how did that impact your work with the coaches? Yeah, for me, I wanted to uh, be an entrepreneur. So um, after being with one team for 16 years, I, I, wanted to, I wanted to run my own shop. So that was really the impetus for doing that. And I took so many, I took the rigor of running a team to being a coaching agent. What I mean by that is I was trying to acquire as many first round picks. So I was actually really trying to go young 
I was trying to get as many young coaches as I could. And uh, I partnered with a firm uh, based out of Chicago called Priority Sports. And they represented a lot of former players that wanted to go in coaching, most notably Steve Kerr. Um, and that's really where the partnership started. And I think the reason we had such success, Adam, was I was looking to be someone's partner. And in Steve's case, for example, we spent a year getting ready for him to transition from broadcasting to being a head coach. And that was a very fulfilling experience. Like he flew to go see Dan Quinn and Pete Carroll in Seattle. He flew to go see Bill Parcells in Saratoga, New York. Um, and those were the people that, you know, you just draw energy from and are inspired by. And you, you mentioned this a little bit already, but, you know, obviously your experience is or was primarily in football, and now you're helping Steve Kerr in basketball. So what was it like and what kind of experiences did you have crossing over in the different sports? Yeah, I think it was just, again, rigor in the process about being organized, being um, having a foundation for what you believed in. Um, and, and the thing about Steve, and I think there's two sort of attributes, and we could be talking about teaching a class at Northwestern, being the head coach of the Warriors. It doesn't matter. I think it comes down to really two fundamental um, attributes you need to have. One is mental toughness because n nobody's going to ever go in a straight line. Like you, you created a really successful business in Block 6 Analytics, and I'm sure there are some days that have been really, really tough. I, 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 there's no business in the world that just says, oh, here we are and away we go. So mental toughness is number one. And then two, having a growth mindset. I've been around some really smart people that have fixed mindsets, and when you do – you're just putting a ceiling on your ability. So the, to have innate intellectual curiosity and to know that you don't have the answers. And Steve Kerr, one of the things that was really, that really encapsulates my experience there and exemplifies who he is was once we signed that contract with the Warriors, I'm like, what are you going to go do now? And he said, I'm going to Vegas. I'm like, why in the world are you going to Vegas? He said, I want to go coach the summer league team. I got to go make mistakes. I got to go learn about when I'm going to rotate players in. I got to learn when I'm going to call timeouts. So here's a guy that was a great player. He was the GM of the Phoenix Suns. He was a Hall of Fame broadcaster, and he wanted to go make mistakes as a head coach. And that's, you know, that's Steve Kerr, and that to me is all about, again, regardless of what you're doing, are you always trying to get better? Yeah, and speaking of making mistakes, and I, I agree with you, it's definitely been challenging times in my company, but – you know, one of the questions we were asking all of our guests is to talk about a challenging experience they've had in their career and how they've dealt with it and how they were able to bounce back. You know, whether you call it a mistake or just a challenging environment. So, you know, how have you been able to, you know, what was a, a challenging experience and how did you uh, deal with it? I feel like every day is for me. Um, I think that's kind of the industry I'm in and probably the way I'm hardwired, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but gosh, I, I you know, there wasn't a day that I could sit there at the Jets or the Dolphins and be like, "Good, oh, things are going great. Let's go, uh, let's go for a two-hour lunch and play golf." You know, I, I wish I could have had more of those days. I just wasn't wired that way. So I was always about, you know, what's keeping us from winning a championship? What can we do better? Who can we go acquire? You know, what what foundationally can we do better in the building? And it's never going to be good enough. And how can we challenge ourselves to be better? And if you're not driven that way, um, I think sports, or at least the people I've been around, are mostly compartmentalized that way. And as Coach Parcells would say, you know, this is not an industry for the well-adjusted. You know, like, we're, you got to be a little bit crazy to work every, every day. And um, so I think the challenges are the ones that um, you have to thrive on it. And you have to be able to know that um, what's plan B. Because plan B is, you know, that, that 
you have to lean into plan B and, and accept it and excel on that. Speaking of, you know, um, being able to identify players and lean into plan B, um, one of the questions we wanted to talk about is the use, and you mentioned this a little bit from a salary cap perspective, but the use of numbers and data and information. So when you, at the same time, you're also having to balance that information with actual people, right? I mean, in your course of your career, particularly with the Jets, there were definitely some colorful characters, we'll say, uh, whether it's Rex Ryan or Brett Favre. Um, so how did you, you know, use numbers and, and in your decision-making process, and how do you balance that kind of with the personal side and dealing with the characters? Yeah, so the way I look at that is I, I – and, and as we got more sophisticated with, uh, I would say, deeper statistical analysis, and, I, and I'm sure you feel the same way, like sometimes – the word analytics just gets, you know, overused out. But fundamentally, I always talk about it really just being, I want it to be the guardrails of, of the fairway. Like, tell me where we should be. What's an acceptable result for what we're going to do? If we're going to draft a player, do, do they have the requisite height, weight, speed? And if they don't, that's okay. We can go outside those purviews of those guardrails. That's okay. But let's understand that we are doing that and what's the reason for it. So, if we know that 80% of the left tackles in the NFL are six foot four or taller, and we want to draft someone that's six three, that's okay. But why is he? Does he have extraordinary strength or quickness or arm length or whatever it may be? Um, let's make sure we're making an informed decision. So. I think it's about making the right decision and having the right process, more so than saying that anyone – I don't think that's true. Yeah, I, I agree. And then, um, you know, in, in the context of, you know, making those decisions, um, how do you how do you put the process into place? Having the right process, you're going to have to work with a variety of different people to make that happen. So, how are you able to do that successfully? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. That that that's a tough one, Adam. Because, uh, geez, um, I I think one of the big challenges you still have to this day is the people dynamic, and I'm generalizing here, but you know, football there's there's different buckets of people that have different levels of uh, I would say open-mindedness, again, going back to that notion of a growth mindset. So by way of example, if a coach has done things for 25 years with some modicum of success, and now you have some you know, younger person coming in saying, well, did you think about this? I think there's a time and a place to approach them and, and, and how you can be value added. So I think you can have the right process, but you also need to have the right mindset within your organization because you want people, again, to embrace it. Yeah, and speak and on those along those lines, you know, things obviously, like you said, with numbers and data and having the decision making process and managing different people. So, what kind of industry trends have you been seeing in the sports side, um, either in football or otherwise? Has there been an increase in the use of you know you mentioned this a little bit earlier? Has there been an increase in the use of data, uh, numbers, information? How do you see coaches starting to integrate that kind of information into the way they're thinking? And yeah. you know, how are you seeing numbers in the industry? Yeah, and Adam, I think where we're, we're going to see it go is uh, I think even where there'll be growth is in the performance sector. So um, if we were having this conversation four or five years ago, like, for example, when I got hired as a consultant for the Dolphins, I put together uh, one of the first analytic departments in pro football. Um, he, Mr. Ross was smart and uh, 
really was a pioneer in, in wanting to staff up uh, a whole department of just, you know, uh, data-based decision-making. And we did that. And I think just if you did a very cursory review of all 32 teams to some varying degrees, all teams would have that within a, you know, a five-year period. I think the next frontier is certainly, and I think this is where Europe candidly is uh, ahead of where we are in the States, is in performance technology and using information either both from a modality standpoint and from a data standpoint, much more being predictive of either performance or injury prevention, um, strategic sort of like alignment on the field, like where players, uh, where you could actually look when you watch broadcasts now, player speed, for example. And I think we're going to see more of that. And I think what that'll lead to, I, I, I believe, is uh, better performance healthier players and a more engaged fan. So I think I see those as all real positives. Yeah. And, and on those lines, you know, we've obviously talked a lot about football, but you know, one of the things is, you know, you're obviously um, an advisor to a company called Battlefin and you're looking at trends beyond sports. So whether it's talking about engaged fans or leveraging data or even, um, you know, We've, we've talked about this in the past a little bit, you know, sports gambling, sports betting. What kind of industry trends are you seeing now uh, emerge uh, in the industry, particularly with media consumption, fan engagement, uh, sports gambling, or anything else that you do? Yeah, I think where the trends are, um, you know, it, it's, it's such an incredible frontier where the world of data is going just in terms of, uh, again, having – when we look at sponsors on the buy side and the sell side, things that you guys do at Block 6, for example – um, just the incredible amount of information that's out there. So I think what we're going to see is, again, more informed behavior from sponsor dollars, more efficiencies. I think on the team side, performance-wise, I think we're going to see, again, more information in real time. So um, there are companies out there now Adam, in real time that have will predict what will happen in the NFL draft. So if you think about the incredible currency that creates from a standpoint that if you know within reason – which players could be there when you are going to draft, you know, that, that, that really is, you know, priceless information. Now that still is somewhat has to be proved in real time. And there's obviously a lot of other factors, but that's one for sure. And then another one is, you know, fan sentiment, just from a standpoint of there's uh, aggregators out there that can take all this information that's out in the social media world and aggregate it in real time. So, you know, when the Chicago bears, draft player X, they, the Chicago Bears social media people can tell you in real time that 80% approve, 10% disprove, 8% have anxiety, or, um, you know, Joe Madden leaves the Cubs, you know, is do the Cubs see that as, uh, the fans see that as an opportunity, is there regret? Um, to have that information as uh, a stakeholder in that ecosystem is really meaningful. Yeah, I'm happy you were able to mention the Chicago Bears after what happened over the draft. Uh, I'm glad we're, we're able to still talk about it. Uh, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Mike had a little bit of an incident with the, if you want to call it that, with the Bears faithful over some of the comments he made on ESPN. <laughs> one of the players, uh, which I'm happy for you to comment on if you'd like. But um, part of the reason I bring that up is in the context of uh, what's happening right now right, with the coronavirus and with COVID-19 and how you how that impacted what you were doing on the draft but you know how are you seeing uh the current situation the current dynamic how are you seeing that impact the industry how does that impact your you know day-to-day and how is it you know how, how do you think if 
there's going to be lasting impacts. You know, what kind of lasting impacts do you potentially see from that? Yeah, that's the great question. And boy, I'd love to have that conversation today and in six months. Yeah. Um, I think I think we should all own, you know, stock and Zoom because I don't think that's uh, I don't think that's going away. In talking to a lot of coaches around the league, Adam, I think, you know, there's been a little bit of an enlightenment to be candid that what can we do virtually? And I think to the extent that over the next couple of years, we may see you know, a blended off season. And what I mean by a blended off season, where if we wanted all the players in the building for seven weeks, maybe we have them for five, but we have three additional weeks where it's virtual. Um, now you can't get everything done virtual in terms of like, it's the ultimate people business and it's a relationship business. But to the extent you can learn, you know, the offense or the defense, I think we're going to see, you know, more of that. I would be very surprised that I've said this on the record, but I think we'll play this year. I don't think there's any question about that, whether there are fans, how that will look, um, social distancing. I think that there's a lot that has to be worked out, obviously. But, I, you know, I've heard some very smart people say if, if people will start getting back on the airplanes, it's reasonable to think they're going to go to an open-air stadium. So um, what that behavior looks like, again, with social distancing, I think that's a big work in progress. but. Again, selfishly, and I, and I think the country, like, we'll need football, you know, when it's football season. I know people in my uh, office need football. I need football a lot, so I'm glad they're going to be happy to hear that. But um, one of the questions, you know, obviously you mentioned your work um, with coaches, right, whether that is Bill Belichick or Al Groh. How do you think – you mentioned having more virtual conversations. How do you think will adapt? We obviously saw with uh, Sean Payton. You know, he was more open seemingly to kind of virtual communication. But do you think that is something that coaches and front offices will be more willing to accept? Co- coaches are selfish. If, if it can help them win, the, the answer will be yes. So yeah. to the extent that they could scale their leadership or scale their sort of resources, they'll be all for it. If it helps new players uh, acclimate and uh, get up to speed quicker, they'll be all for it. So, again, I think we'll see – an enlightenment over the next couple of years where, again, maybe there's some compromise where the off-season program is longer, but maybe the first couple of weeks are virtual. Great. And, and you know, as we're wrapping up, um, from your end, you know, we've mentioned this already. Uh, obviously, this is a podcast focused on the uh, Northwestern Master of Sports Administration. We're trying to talk to students. So, you know, there's a lot of students who would like to be in a position or follow a similar career path that you've followed. So, what advice do you have for students who are looking to enter the sports industry um, and, and how can they, you know, start a path and a successful path to, to really get into the sports industry and have a successful career in the sports industry? Yeah, I, I think it's very simple. Be the first one in, be the last to leave. The answer is yes. And the answer is yes with a smile. And, and the last one is the most important, which is meet or exceed your boss's expectations. And if you could leave your building every day, if you could take the hardest thing off of your boss's plate, you become indispensable and you create value. So if you could think long and hard to treat your boss like a customer, like a client, and serve them unconditionally, flawlessly for 24 hours each and every day, you'll achieve whatever you want in your career. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And it's something we tell our students as well. Um, 
And one other thing I forgot to mention earlier, and one of the questions we want to ask you is, you know, we talked a little bit about Battlefield, but, you know, you're now looking at things, you know, both inside and outside the sports industry. So, you know, and you've taken, you're looking potentially to take more of a managerial or advisory role with companies directly, um, like I said, both inside and outside the sports industry. So from your perspective, what are you looking for companies if you're looking to get involved with companies or work with companies? Go ahead. I I think there has to be some sort of like, Direct to consumer, like I, I sit on a couple boards, and if you don't have a direct to consumer strategy, you have no chance um, in this day and age. And, and you know, COVID nineteen has been terrible on a lot of catastrophic on a lot of levels. But what it also has done, it's brought it to the surface, and it's brought things like just how we're going to do business. And, and there'll be things that get back to some semblances of normal, but I also think there'll be a new normal. So um, whatever your product or services, you know, how does that live and work and thrive and monetize in a digital world? To me, that's a threshold question. And if you're just uh, a mom pop, you know, brick and mortar, I, I, I just think it's going to be really hard. You're just, you're, you're decreasing your chances. That's not to say you can't be successful at but I just think it's so hard. So that to me is kind of like a barrier for me. And then what value add do you bring, you know, to people's lives, how do you help enrich them, and um, is it is it good? And, and like, I, I try to gravitate towards things that help people enhance their performance, uh, make a business run, you know, more intelligently. Uh, look, I, I look at what you guys do at Block Six. Like, you're walking around with the answers to the test. You're enriching your client. Like, you bring instant value. Like, your product and services sell themselves. And I think that's going to be uh, a lot of what the new environment and new economy is going to look like. Yeah. And one last question. Uh, you know, you have a unique experience and have been in a unique position. You we're talking about direct to consumer businesses. Obviously, you've been in high profile positions where fans feel like in any way that they've interacted with you or engaged with you. How One, has that shaped, you know, when you're talking about direct to consumer or fan engagement, has your position impacted the way you think about reaching out to consumers now in a, in a more business context? And two, how, how do how do new technologies, you know, impact the way that you interact with fans and consumers? Yeah, and Adam, I will candidly tell you that that was an area I could have done a much better job. I was probably a dinosaur when I was with the team, uh, not embracing, you know, what was a new paradigm um, and step, taking a step back and looking at the world. That, that really is the new normal. And why I say that is not only is it what it is today, but if we're having this conversation five, 10 or 15 years, more of the population is growing up with all these sort of, this is what they look like. This is their normal. So um, I think you have to embrace it. And I think pro sports for all its greatness on the team side is probably like one of the last vestiges of like being old school. And I think their paradigm has to continue to shape, uh, uh, evolve. And I think a great example of that to be candid was, the 2020 NFL draft that may become one of those moments in time, a real watershed moment where we went into the draft, understanding it, feeling it being one way. And I covered it for ESPN and I'm watching a lot of my friends and seeing them in their living rooms and seeing them with their families. And I thought that was a a great moment. I thought it was one of Roger Goodell's finest moment as a leader of the NFL to, to kind of pull back the shade and the curtain on, you know, all these incredible people. And I think we're going to see more of that, not less of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Um, and, and again, it's always great to get a perspective of somebody who's been in the position that you've been in. 
So Mike, I wanted to thank you for joining uh, the Northwestern MSA podcast. Um, we appreciate your time. We appreciate your insights. And, and thank you again for engaging with our students and with our larger audience. Yeah, thank you for having me.